Welcome to episode 360 of the AMPM podcast. This week, my guest is Zach Leonard. Zach is one of the co-founders of a company called Gimba, and their specialty is helping sellers bring new products to market, whether that's a brand new idea and complete innovation, or just making incremental innovation on existing products, which is one of the most important things you can be doing now as a third-party seller, especially on Amazon. The days of just going onto Alibaba and uh, finding something and sticking your your name on it uh, are pretty much over for the most part. And so Gimba's got some pretty innovative ways to actually help sellers do differentiation, create new ideas, and they have a new marketplace as well that's uh, pretty cool. We're gonna talk about all that in this episode. Welcome to the AMPM Podcast. Welcome to the AMPM Podcast. We explore opportunities in e-commerce. We dream big and we discover what's working right now. Plus, plus, this is the podcast where money never sleeps. Working around the clock in the AM and the PM. Are you ready for today's episode? I said, I said are, are you, you ready? Ready. Let's do this. Let's do this. Here's your host, Here's your host Kevin King. Kevin King. Welcome to the AMPM podcast, Zach. How you doing, man? I'm doing good, doing well. It's good to good to be on the show. It is. I used to see you all the time uh, when you were living in Austin for a while, and uh, you recently uh, headed up north to, to Minneapolis. And so I don't get to see you and go to all these cool restaurants, and I don't get to pick your brain on what are the cool speakeasies and what's the latest code word to to get into these underground <laughs> bars and all that stuff that we used to be able to do. I know, I know. You're going to have to be the one who takes me around town next time. Uh, next time I'm back down there, so it'll be fun to to, to catch up and in person and uh, and hit up all those speakeasies. But you're going to have to show me which ones are the cool ones to go to this time. So, how did you always know the speakeasies? Like, how, how, I mean, I know you went to the University of Texas, and I'm sorry for that. Uh, but but uh, I, I apologize that uh, someone forced you to uh, to graduate from UT. No, right. Oh man, it's so hard going to the premier school in Texas. It's really, really hard. <laughs> the reason I say that for the, those of you who don't know, we always give each other a hard time because I'm a I'm an Aggie from Texas A&M, and Texas A&M it's about an hour and a half from Austin, uh, and and the University of Texas is in Austin, the capital, and so they're they're big. They've been big rivals for a long time uh, in sports and in all aspects of life. Uh, but it's a UT is a, a good school. Uh, we the Aggies call it TU, little T, little U. We reverse it, you know. And we've got <laughs> jokes for each other, and uh, uh, no, it's yeah. it's a it's a friendly rival rivalry. Uh, but it's the two premier yeah. public schools in Texas. Yeah, it's like having a little brother who thinks he's bigger than you, but he's not. That's what that's what made him is. <laughs> you know, no, you're at right. Least we it's don't a, have, we it's don't a healthy have, healthy rivalry. We don't have a longhorn that poops everywhere. You know, our dog, our our our, our mascot's well trained. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now it's a big rivalry in football, and it used to be um, on Thanksgiving every year, and. Uh, the two teams would play, and it was a big deal. Like the whole state of Texas, like you're, yeah. you're picking one side or the other, and sometimes you have mixed families where the husband's an Aggie and the wife's a Longhorn, and you know the, the shirts are split down the middle or, or something. Yeah. So it's uh, it's Those it's a lot of fun. fun. I, I don't think I've been to a losing UT A and M game though. So the, the years that I was there was you know we had Colt McCoy and went to the national championship and stuff, so we didn't really lose. But now that we're back in the SEC. We may actually renew this rivalry that was that's been missing for like the last you know almost decade now. Yeah, um, yes. So it'll, it'll be 2012. Fun. I went to that game, that very last game yeah. where they play played in 2012. I was there in the nosebleed seats, yeah. uh, and uh, you guys kicked a field goal in the last few seconds or something to win that game. I was yeah. like, Jesus Christ! And yeah. so we have to live with that for the last ten years. So we need it. We need uh, that those matches uh, rekindle, and I think they will be with uh, the move to the yeah. SEC next year in 2024. Uh, so that, that should yeah, be yeah. That should be good. But back to your original question of uh, how did I find the speakeasies? I mean, I, yeah, going to UT there, and then I I was there, you know, in my I went to Chicago for a couple of years, and then came back down to Austin just because I, I loved Austin. And you know, when you're in your early twenties, mid twenties, you kind of try and find the cool spots in town to to go. And I was, you know, young and and all that stuff. So uh, kind of grows on you. And then if you you know, I was I've always been. Always liked you know the food scene as well, so you kind of get a mixture of both with the good food. And some of the speakeasies are in the bottom or the basements of these good restaurants, so it makes it kind of a nice night to you know entertain or 
or bring your girlfriend or fiance or whatever at the time when I was kind of learning this stuff. And then, yeah, just kept going to them and, and I would, I, I just really enjoyed it. One of, the, one of the sushi bar, the one that the guys that own Pasta Bar, wasn't that originally in the back of a, another restaurant and you had to know like the, the curtains to go through or something like that and the secret word to get back there? Yeah, I can't remember which one that was, but there's that. There's one in the back of Greenlight Social. There's there's one in the basement of Buenos Aires Cafe. There's one that you have to have an app with a password that they give out and you have to reserve a spot. There's Midnight Cowboy. There's a bunch of, bunch of stuff around town. Repair company. Yeah, Floppy Disk. That's the one that you have to know the code and they change the code every month. So yeah, it's, you know, you just got to know the right people and have gone there for long enough to get on those lists and, and all that. But yeah, it's, it's, Austin's has no shortage of, of fun bars and, and restaurants to go to. That's for sure. Uh, you probably don't miss the traffic, uh, uh, but you probably, <laughs> Austin has not kept up with its massive growth and popularity on, on the streets. And I know it's, it was never meant to be a big city, right? It was meant to be a tra- you know, kind of a transient town where people just kind of drive through. And then all of a sudden, you know, I think there were some, there's some studies that have come out that like all these things kind of happened, which is why Austin became as big as it is. But it's like, you had the capital there and then you built the university there and then the tech scene started to come there. And then it's like, okay, it's really business friendly. So all the big companies started to move there because it was a cool city. And, and then you had, you the, you had uh, Tesla and, all, yeah, all the tech. And then you, from uh, entertainment or drawing the younger crowd is the real MTV's the real world came here. And that's, yeah, I that's think right. like 20 years ago or something and roughly somewhere around there. And that's kind of what set off this trend of this cool city. And it just, then X games were, were here and uh, a whole bunch of other other stuff and just started getting featured everywhere. Queer Eye for the Straight Guy most recently, you know, that what's a popular uh, yeah, yeah. show uh, on Netflix and Yep. And they built an F one, you know. Yeah, an F one and then track the music. And, yeah, you know, so it's South it's, by Southwest and ACL. So they've always kind of been entrenched in like the the music scene. Like it's really cool because it's it started off, you know, like as the music city kind of a little bit more party, but then you start layering on like this more sophistication of you know, tech and big companies. And, and now it's just like such a booming city. It's so exciting to be in, you know, a, a place like that, or it was exciting to be in a place like that. And definitely, you know, my business still being based, so I get to go back there, you know, every so often. So it, it's, it's always a good time to go back. I'm looking out, I live downtown. I'm looking out my window right now. And there's like, I think I counted a few weeks ago, sitting on my balcony, I counted 30 something cranes. 32 cranes. Uh, that's, the, that's the state bird. Haven't you heard? It's, it's, it is. It's the state, it's the state bird. But yeah. It's, it's a, and now it's become a, you know, you've Silicon Valley is the home of all the computers and uh, it and uh, investment bankers. Austin has become this everything internet, basically. I mean, the internet marketing yeah. scene, not just Amazon, but the internet marketing right. scene here um, and agency scene and digital marketers based here, you know, Joe Rogan moved his whole, th- whole show here. Yep. Several others, yep. uh, that Ryan, the vest, the ask why guy. And there's tons of, I mean, I could, the list goes on and on and on and on of people that have, have moved, uh, and made Austin their, their base. Yeah. And, and I think some of the big exits that have happened, like trend kite, which, you know, is a ad tech or media or marketing tech company, right? Like they had a pretty sizable exit of, you know, five, 10 years ago. And so again, I, th- I just think there's been a lot of like you're saying, a lot of cool, cool things have happened and that have kind of exacerbated the growth of Austin over the last 10 to 15 years. And like you said, the, uh, the tax, Texas is very tax friendly and business friendly. And I remember when, right. he, when, uh, Manny and Guillermo who founded helium 10, uh, when they did, they built that to exit and before they exited, they were looking at, uh, they got to get out of California, uh, cause they were based in California. Now, the company is still based in California, but don't they personally, need to get out, right. of, out of California because the taxes were going to kill them. And I remember Manny, it was feb- like February of 2019 or something. And they knew that they're going to sell at some point that year. And there's like a six month window. You got to get out uh, with it. Yeah. You got to be somewhere else for at least six months to actually not fall under California law. Or I don't, I don't know the specifics of it, but something like that. So it was like almost overnight. They're like, we don't care about the lease. We'll just pay off the last five months of yeah. our lease. And they moved like within a week. Yeah. To, to Austin. And then when they exited in September, 2019, it was a huge exit. And they told me that it was a multi-million dollar move. Uh, so oh, yeah, it was huge. Yeah. I mean, you're going from, you know, California state income tax, which I think is like 12, pretty high, 12, especially for that tax bracket. And then you go, 
you know, to Texas where there's zero state income tax. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's awesome. And he's, man, he's stayed, right? Like yeah. Still, Manny and Guillermo are still both here in still, Austin. Yeah. They, they stay here. Yeah. I see them, uh, every, we hang out uh, from time to time and, uh, yeah. yeah. I've caught up with him a couple times too, since, since they exited and he seems to be having fun and he's doing that NFT thing. Yeah. Um, the bulls and apes project so, is one, yeah. one of their latest uh, projects that's doing, doing pretty well. So you graduated from UT. What, what was your degree in? Finance. Um, finance. No so how did you end up in the sourcing stuff? I mean, because you, for those of you who don't know, uh, Zach is the co-founder of Gimba, uh, G-E-M-B-A-H, uh, Gimba. And that's a company. What does that actually mean? What does Gimba mean? Yeah. So it's a, it's a theory in Kaizen manufacturing, which is Japanese. Like they kind of made the the whole Kaizen theory, you know, with Toyota and a lot of the stuff that they did. So they felt they're like pioneers in that space and some of the best in the world. Um, but Gemba is the place on the manufacturing floor where value is created. So people talk about going on Gemba walks. They literally just kind of sit on the manufacturing floor and just watch everything from an operational perspective and try and find ways that they could incrementally improve their operations on the assembly lines and machinery and all that stuff. So you talk a lot about Gemba walks um, or hear a lot about that. And that's what the company's based on. And then in, in Chinese, um, Gambe is kind of like bottoms up or cheers. So it's kind of a, a play on both of those words. Did you come up with that name or what's that? I think it was, I can't remember exactly if it was me or, or Steven, but we kind of, you know, we put some stuff on the board and, and uh, Steven's one of my co-founders uh, and we, you know, it's kind of one of those things where like, I don't know if you, you know, if you named your kids or you named something, whatever, like kind of have to let it settle and see mm-hmm. if it sticks or whatever. And then, uh, you know, when it, when you keep coming back to it, you're like, all right, there's some good energy here and you, you stick with it. But just when we started the company, you know, we were, we were meeting like every month, you, 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 you sign those incorporation docs just to like make sure everything's official. And then we started meeting every week or every month, then it turns into week, then it turns in every day. And it's now, you know, then you're like, all right, something's really here. But um, my route to get there was a little bit different. Um, I went straight from school into the consulting world. Um, I worked at KPMG for a few years uh, doing credit risk operations uh, as a like consulting for, for banks and mortgage originators. And, you know, I, I think I learned a lot from KPMG and how to really organize chaos. Like you kind of get thrown into projects as a 22 year old and uh, learned a lot of like good Excel and VBA and, and modeling skills and all that, but it just didn't excite me enough. Like it's, you know, I, I, there was a path that I could take to go down there, but it, it didn't. And then, um, so, you know, my, my older brother was in the startup scene and, and, you know, he was early on at Groupon and they exited, you know, he was there from like early on until they exited. So I saw what, you know, getting in that space could do just from an excitement level, but also from personal wealth level, like I had no exposure to it. Um, and so, you know, he, he kept on telling me like, you gotta get, you gotta try this out. You gotta try this out. So I did. And I got lucky. The first one I went to was Instacart. Um, and so it was a same day logistics company. So um, kind of the last mile of logistics, but still, you know, getting into the starting into the supply chain. But it's, it was just, you know, the last mile of it. And I got lucky because I was, you know, early on there, too. I, I, <laughs> I don't know why, but uh, my brother and I seem to pick the winners in terms of that sp- <laughs> in terms of that space. But, yeah, so, you know, I, I started off as a, you know, managing the, the Austin market and, you know, we expanded into Dallas, San Antonio and Houston while I was there help foster partnerships with Whole Foods, the whole build out that they have at the 6th Street uh, with the freezer outside, like we did that. Um, we brought, you know, Austin to profitability and then they started replicating that throughout the rest of, uh, you know, some of the cities that they could function the same way that Austin did. Like New York obviously has different challenges than Austin from a driver capacity perspective and all that. So it's just the cities that looked similar and dynamic to Austin, they could replicate those models with. And so basically, Ansys Card, for those that don't know, uh, uh, is they make partnerships with local stores. A lot of times it's a grocery store. It doesn't have to be a grocery store, but a lot of times it's grocery stores. And you basically, the grocery stores mark everything up. So a bottle of ketchup, if you go to the store, it might be, I don't know, $2.69. But on Instacart, it's $3.89 or something. And then there's a little bit of a service fee. And they they go and basically shop it for you. So you go online, you say, this is, this is what you 
what you want. And then within, you know, there's different delivery parameters. Now it's like within a couple hours, uh, you know, back then it might've been a little bit different. And they actually go and they buy it from the local grocery store or the local target or whatever it may be. And they bring it to you. That's basically what, yeah. for those of you who don't know what Instacart uh, is. Yeah, definitely. Um, funny enough, but like some of the, some of the stores, they don't mark up like Whole Foods, they, they didn't. And now that, but that was back in the day. I don't even know if Whole Foods is on their platform anymore because Amazon bought Whole Foods is basically, you know, yeah, the foundation of what Instacart happened. Yeah. So it's funny, all the buildup that we did and <laughs> Amazon ended up buying that out and Instacart kind of was like, all right, well, whatever. Um, but then after that, uh, worked for a company locally in Austin. It was a national company, but it was based in Austin called Dropoff. Same thing, same day logistics. Um, ran strategy for that company. Um and then I met uh, Stephen, one of my co-founders, more personally, like he, he was a roommate uh, with one of my friends growing up at where he went to school at Kansas. Uh, so we kind of loosely knew each other. But then when we moved to Austin or when I moved to Austin, moved back to Austin, I met him. He had a prep product company that, you know, went on Shark Tank and they got a deal from, I think, uh, Robert and Lori. Um, and so he kind of opened my eyes into the manufacturing world. Um, but he would always talk about the challenges of, you know, what it was like to be a small business in manufacturing. And he would go over there so many times and, you know, he would visit a lot of factories and they weren't being transparent. And then, you know, he was also talking to our CEO, Henrik at the time, our other co-founder, um, about the same thing. And Henrik was in the promo space, promotional product space, and he would have the same issues. He was just like, I always go to China and go to these factories. And I would always ask like, where does this come from? And they were like, they wouldn't have any answers. And so, you know, this was six years ago, five, six years ago. And out of that, like I said, started meeting monthly, then weekly, then, you know, kind of every day. And the basis of what Gemba was, was to help give transparency to supply chain. So giving you boots on the ground uh, and having people show up at your factory, not in a QC perspective, but more of like your eyes and ears on the ground. So acting as if you were physically there. So taking pictures, videos, speaking to people, like building your team, just standing more shoulder to shoulder with you again, you know, with the factory, as opposed to like going as a like QC, like check the box activity, fill out these things, say it's done and, and leave. So that's how it started. And then we quickly were you know, we, we started to go into the Amazon FBA space as a, getting a lot of customers there. Um, I actually remember the first time I met you at Prosper, I just kind of tapped your shoulder and we started talking. And I think, you know, you were, you were awesome. And I think the fact that, you know, I was in Austin maybe helped us out a little bit. I, I didn't tell you, I, was, I didn't go, I didn't tell you I went to UT yet, but you know, start shortly thereafter, <laughs> I think you figured that out. Um, and even, you know, even so you, you had always been a, a great advocate for us and kind of helped us you know, get our name out there and, and uh, even became a customer of ours to, to prove out that, you know, we were for real. But um, we, we started to find quickly that, you know, the same problems that people have with, you know, small businesses, the same, the same challenges, same dynamic or same, you know, customer personas, they were having challenges with launching and designing new products. And so we already had this, you know, marketplace ecosystem of people in, you know, China and India and a large factory network that we were building. And so we thought, well, Hey, look, like we can serve these customers better. There's, there's more that we can do. There's more value that we can have further up the chain than supply chain. So we started to tap in and go into the design aspect of it. And we hired some really awesome people. Our head of design, you know, comes from Dyson, which is one of the best yeah. <laughs> design firms in the world, best product companies in the world. And he reported directly into James Dyson. He has like, 80 to hundred patents under his name personally. Um, some of the products that you probably have in your house, he, he created or helped create. Right. So, um, you know, really about, and then building out a designer network that, you know, we vet and make sure similar to how we do with our manufacturing network. Like there has to be a certain quality and a certain standard that the, that fits the bill of, of getting a, you know, working for Gemba, working within our ecosystem um, the first part of it is like you have to have made a product before and it's had to be mass manufactured before. Uh, but also you have to have good customer, you know, you have to have good chops with customers um, if you're going to manage your own product and, and product development cycles. So um, along with some other things that we do, obviously, but loosely, that's like a, a lot of the criteria that we start to better. So basically someone has a, either they're, they have an idea for a product 
uh, and they can come to you and you guys will walk them through the whole design phase, the whole, um, you know, creating the STLs, the, uh, all the CAD stuff, whatever, all the, uh, right. part manufacturing parts list, uh, and then do they can stop right there if they, they know how they have their own factories and have their own stuff, or you, they can continue on the process with, where you guys actually help them source the factory, uh, and right. they can stop right there if they have their own 3PL or then, or you can bring them in, uh, and manage the whole thing from basically, uh, birth to, uh, graduation, uh, along right. the way. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. So there's multiple entry points in terms of if you have problems as a, you know, as a brand, right? Like if you need help with your first product or your 10th product, or your hundredth product, um, we can help and it doesn't have to be, you know, do it all or nothing. It's like you said, you can come in just for design, you can come in just for research, you can come in just for sourcing, you can come in just for logistics. Uh, at the end of the day, we've built up, a, like I said, now it's over 3000 factories in eight different countries that we you know, partner with. Um, and they all go through the same vetting process that we, that we have to make sure that they're legitimate. And I think, you know, where Alibaba, I think goes for quantity, we go for quality. Like you can download, you know, lists and tons of, you know, big lists of manufacturers. I think there's like over 150,000 factories in China alone, but we don't, you know, they have to be real factories for us to work with them and they yeah. have to be making good products for us to work with them. So, um, and a lot of people don't understand that the product developments, that's life cycle or the, the stages and how, how complicated that actually can be even for simple products. I mean, I, when I first started on FBA, I've been making products for 20 something years, you know, in the collectible space and in other spaces, in the printing space, uh, printing and overseas. But when I started doing, creating my own products for Amazon in 2015, I launched five, five brands and two of those, I built the products from scratch. Uh, you know, I, I yeah. what you guys didn't exist then. And so I was having to go out to Fiverr or Upwork. I think back then it was called Elance and find people. And I was able to find some pretty good people that could, could do the work that I needed at a, a pretty reasonable price. But I knew what I was doing. Uh, I, I, I've been doing this for a while. I didn't know everything, but I, you know, this didn't scare me or, or anything, but a lot of people, they don't have that experience. So, so that, and so coming to someone like yourself that can hold their hand along the way, I think is wise. And it's not necessarily the cheapest. I mean, I've, we've done stuff, like you said, we've done stuff with you too, with one of my, with one of my companies and mm -hmm. it wasn't definitely the cheapest, but it was actually the quality that you get is because the designers and the people that you guys have is far superior. I mean, just package design, you know, you're like some of your full-time people, then you have freelancers or people that are, I guess, freelance too, that they're, they're working for like some of the mm -hmm. biggest design package design firms in the company, in the world. Uh, and mm -hmm. these are like sharp people that are very, very creative and very, very good. And if you want to create a true brand and get to that next level, sometimes you got to pay a little bit more. Yeah, I, I, totally. Um, I think like you said, there's, there's just a, I think there's almost like a, a fear that it's going to take a lot of time, a lot of money and a lot of energy to, to launch a product. And don't get me wrong. It should like it, it does, but it's not as, it's not as, um, unapproachable as it used to be. I think when you started doing yours and even recently we've, we've launched a new product, a, a marketplace that makes it even faster and cheaper to, to go down that path. Um, we can talk about that, you know, whenever you want, but, um, yeah, like you said, I, I think from our perspective, we've always been trying to help uh, make you know manufacturing more accessible and more approachable, make design and product development more accessible and more approachable. Um, and I, even our 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 slogan or our company values is democratizing product innovation. Right? It's about making it more accessible, making it easier, making it more affordable for people because we want to we want to bring new awesome products to the market, right? Like that's how things like, you know, all the, all the AI stuff that happens now, I didn't, that didn't come overnight. Like that's been a buildup of data and machine learning over a long period of time. It's the same thing as like an iPhone, right? The original iPhone that was launched was a buildup of all these other phones that came out. And then all of a sudden, you know, Steve Jobs is like, I'm going to do this. And, you know, that doesn't happen overnight, but there's some really cool products that, you know, inventors and creators have these infinite capacity to, to think through and we're there to help hold their hand and help, you know, inspire and, and keep that journey going. Um, 
so it's really it's really you know powerful for us i think as a company to help you know get these products out the market as fast as possible and make sure that you know those mistakes and those things like again they, they can come up but that you avoid as much of those risks as you can by going with people who have done it before you you have a lot of the aggregators and some of the bigger sellers have come to you to do whole product lines and whole brand lines and stuff. It's, this is not just individual sellers that need to try to launch a product. Um, you have, you've done some pretty big uh, projects for some pretty big companies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I went on your, uh, your, <laughs> your training course the other day and I kind of walked through, um, you know, the, one of the projects that we did that was really successful for one of the early aggregators, one-on-one commerce that got bought up by Goja um, and then, you know, we, we kind of deep dove into what it took to launch a massage gun, right. And how to do it effectively at the, the things that we were looking at with them and the, the process of, you know, shortcutting some of the, the things that come up that, you know, maybe if you haven't done it before, or even if you have, that's going to save you a ton of time and energy and things to think through like that. So the cool thing about developing a product is it's not a linear path necessarily, right? Like there's things that come up, there's there's things that you can do to shortcut the path, right? It, it is from point A to point B, but if, again, if you're like, think of it if you're flying a if you're flying a plane from New York to California, there's a preferred route, but like, let's say there's turbulence that happens over here, you're gonna wanna avoid that. There's a storm that pops up last minute, you wanna avoid that. We know what the end destination is on both sides. Like we know where we're starting, we know where we're ending. How we get there is really about what it is. It's the journey. And we try to make that as smooth as ride as possible. When clients come to you, what are some of the big pain points or mistakes or something that you're seeing that they're, they're making? What are some of the miscon- maybe misconceptions or some of the issues, the fires that you have to put out when someone comes to you, when they, when they have an I- idea for a product? Or they may- maybe they just have the idea or they've already started? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it really depends on how far along in their brand they are. So let's just say that they're starting out. It's the, the issues that come up is like, I've never done this before. I don't even know how to source a factory. I've never created a product before. Who do I hire? Right? Like that's kind of the, the, the journey for them is like, I, I haven't set up my website before. I don't know how to do packaging. I don't know all these things. So that's kind of like your first time or, or just launching my brand. Those are the issues that typically come up. So they're more of the, just you know the like? ideation people or the inventor type of people or, or someone that has a good idea and they just don't know how to execute on it. Exactly. That's, that's kind of that bucket. And then you go into the next one is like, I have a product that's done well. Now, what do I do? Right? Like I need to launch another, I'm trying to build it from a product into a brand. How do I extend my line of products so that it becomes a brand rather than just a single product? And so that's more of the product development, looking into trends, market research, seeing what other SKUs are performing well, that could be complementary to the to the hero skew that you have. Um, so that's like, I want to develop a brand, that persona. And then you have like an aggregator who's, I have a large skew. I have a large slate of brands. I need to have high velocity launches, meaning I need to get 50, a hundred product launches out in a year. How do I do that with a limited team? Right? So that's a totally different persona than the first two that I mentioned. The fact of the matter is like, regardless of what, what you're doing. I think as long as you have a product and you're in the e-com or, or D2C or retail, or you're in the consumer goods space, right? We've been trained as consumers to have cyclical buying patterns, right? Like in fashion, I expect a line of clothing to come out by these brands every single quarter, lining with the seasons. I expect a fall line, summer line, spring line, winter line. If I'm buying a car, I expect that there's a new car coming out with better technology every single year. If I'm buying an iPhone, I expect a new iPhone every year. So we've been ingrained as consumers to have new products hit us on some cyclical measure. What I think most people don't do is understand that just because you have a hit product doesn't mean you're going to have a hit brand. And part of being having a hit brand is that you're listening to your customers very intimately to what they want to do with your product or your brand, right? It's up to you as a creator to action that, right? Like what is the best thing that I can do to add value to my brand, ultimately add value to my customers? That's the CEO, creator, whatever, inventor, that's their job to make sure that they're listening. But if there's feedback specifically on your hit product, like someone's going to listen to that feedback and try to compete against you, or you have the leg up, it's your product, you know, your customers, you know, your product better than anyone else. 
you can start that process, right? You can come up with a version two of your product that will potentially most likely and hopefully be better than the first version of your product. And so that's, I think, where a lot of people, you know, get a little caught up or in their head as, as brands or inventors is they're unwilling or scared to take that step for some unknown reason, whether it's fear, whether it's capital, whatever it is. But if you really know your customers, you really know where your brand is trying to go, you can, you know, utilize tools out there. You can utilize research out there. You can utilize partners out there that can help you get to that next step, which is going from a hit product to a great brand and then going from a great brand to an aggregator, a big conglomerate of brands that can launch products at a high velocity. Well, back on this massage gun, that was a few years ago, but that category is super, super competitive, even back then when you did it. Right. So why, what did you guys do? What, what's one of the skills of Gimba to actually make sure that thing's got a good chance of success in a highly competitive market? Yeah, I think we were fortunate enough to work with uh, that company early on when it wasn't as crazy competitive, like the pricing, like the things that we looked at were um, pricing pressure. We looked at, you know, review, the average review scores at total number of, of reviews to get to page one, top three of page one. Like those are things that you want to do from a research perspective. So they kind of helped show that, that stuff to us. And, you know, there was an opportunity to become a premium brand where everyone was going low if you came premium brand and took all the data that said like, here are the things that people care about. Here's what the reviews are saying. So that's the qualitative side. The quantitative side is like, where do we need to price this? How fast do we need to launch this? What's the velocity we need to sell? Like those are more the quantitative side of it. So you combine all those things. Um, it came up with a premium massage gun. And this is from scratch. This is not taking something off the shelf and modifying. This is built from scratch, right? No, this this was this, no. It actually was incremental innovation. Okay, it was okay. taking something. It was taking something that already existed and making some slight adjustments, which is why we were able to launch it so fast. Okay. What we, I mean, like the things that we that we looked at from a quantitative side that we were getting feedback on is the battery power, right? So going to four hours versus three hours. People complained that it would, you know, the juice would 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 uh, not last long enough. So getting a battery that lasted long enough, having different attachments for the pulsing, have different speeds for the pulse, and then visually looking at like, what would that look like on the actual massage gun itself, right? So um, making sure that if we're gonna go for a premium look, like it has to, has to look a certain way. And so getting feedback on that as well. And then working with the other part that, again, I think most people need to understand about, you know, doing this type of, in, this type of development is making sure that the factory has the capacity and the ability to do this kind of stuff in house. So, you know, you're on Alibaba or you've sourced a factory before, like some factories don't have sampling in house. They don't do that. They don't do that in house, whether you're a trading company or you're a smaller factory, like sometimes they outsource the, the, they outsource the, the sampling process. So you also want to make sure that, you know, if you're going down this route of innovation, that, the factory understands what the DFM or design for manufacturing process is. Typically, that means that they have some sort of engineering capabilities in-house as well. Yeah, I remember when I launched my 2015, one of the products that I launched was an Apple Watch charging dock. And back then, this right when the Apple Watch came out, the first one was about to come out. And everybody was doing like these little bamboo stands and like little just junk stands. And I was like, if someone's spending, I don't remember what the watch cost back then, four or five, six hundred dollars whatever it was for a watch... They don't want a little $17 piece of crap stand. Uh, and they were selling like crazy. I was like, I'm going to develop a really nice stand that's made of aluminum that looks like, look, looks really good uh, with the watch. It'll charge the watch and an iPad and a phone at the same time. It has a Bluetooth speaker inside, hides all the cables mm -hmm. in the base so you don't have all these cables all over the table or all over the nightstand. So I developed that from scratch, but I was lucky, like you said. And uh, I sketched out kind of what I wanted to look like, and I found a factory on Global Sources. And they said, just pay us a thousand bucks and we'll do all the design work and we'll, we'll credit the thousand dollars to your first order. You got to do a 3000 MLQ. And these things cost me like $24 a piece. I think landed some, somewhere in that neighborhood at that MLQ. And, and I was selling them for 89 95 and I was selling a lot, uh, like 15, $20,000 a day when, when they launched so much so that I had to air freight 6,000 of them over uh, for Christmas uh, just to get, get them in time. But if you can find a factory that does that, but that whole process, you know, we were going through uh, 3D. I was doing 3D printing uh, where I had a guy here in Austin that had a bunch of, he's down in a Kyle. He had in his, he had set up in his garage. It was a separated building from his house, but 
like 20 different 3D printers in there. And he, he would uh, print, you know, different sizes, different materials, and he, he would print these for me. And I'd take it to the Apple store and actually say, can I, you know, it's a 3D printed version of it. Say, can I, can you take all the watch bands out of the, the cabinet? And so I can test them to make sure they all fit and hang right. And to make some changes, I just check the channels for hiding the cords. And then you go to a, you know, another process where they actually make a, I forget the name of it, but it's a, it's actually a, a, a working copy. That's like a, it's actually like they make three of them and you, you test that and it's not the final polished version. And then you go to the final polished version and the packaging. And it's, it's a, took like eight months to get this from inception yeah. to, to, yeah. to, to actually being a live product. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, I think typically how the, the development cycle goes. Um, and I think it's really hard to find the factories that are skilled enough to shortcut those steps. So it doesn't take so long for, for you to build that, uh, end product. A lot of things, a lot of times also, like I've seen it common is where, especially in the FBA space where people will go engage a factory with no blueprint or no design files mm-hmm. and try and get them to, you know, make slight tweaks with the factory. And, you know, sometimes they're successful, but it's a lot of, you know, going through the sampling process to do that. And the factories, they just don't like that necessarily, right? Like they want the purchase orders. They don't want to spend time in, in sampling. And they kind of know if you're going to go through multiple rounds of sampling, like you're probably doing that with other factories as well, especially coming to them with, no design. So you just don't look as professional going to them and engaging in that manner. Mm-hmm. And some of the smaller factories may, you know, if they need the cash, they'll, they'll entertain it. Right. But the bigger like tier one, tier two factories, like they, they will kind of suss you out pretty quickly if you don't have that stuff buttoned up. Um, and the reason why is for that exact, re- like the reason you kind of talked through, which is like, if you're going through the sampling process and having to do multiple iterations and all that stuff, like that's a waste of their time. Um, with no guaranteed PO. Uh, I think again, when you started doing that, maybe to eight to 10 years ago, like that wasn't as common, but now with all the tens of thousands of Amazon sellers, all trying to do this, all trying to do this and potentially not doing it the correct way or the way that the factories like that. Um, I think it's popped up a lot more that, you know, the smaller factories or some of the trading companies that take on low MOQs are going to be willing to do that. But again, if you're working with a good factory, you better have your stuff together uh, your design files, all that good stuff, or, or you, you better have a good relationship with them where they'll start sending you, you know, some of their new, new latest and greatest ideas. I mean, you see this on Kickstarter. I don't know if you all work with any Kickstarter or Indiegogo type of stuff, but there's so many campaigns on there where people have a good idea and they may even have a good working prototype or some 3d imagery or uh, mock-ups that are, are done that look good. But I don't know what the number is, but a significant portion of Kickstarter things never actually make it to market. Uh, and then the ones yeah. that a lot of the ones that do actually take months, if not years, I'm, I'm waiting for something right now from 2017. That's uh, a Kickstarter project that I, I, I did. And I, I, I get updates from them and they're showing me here's a bunch of things on the factory floor and we're doing testing round number three or whatever it is. But it, it seems to be a common problem. People don't under, underestimate what it actually takes to, to, to do this. Yeah, we, uh, we've worked with a couple uh, Kickstarters and their products actually launch because that's our goal. We don't yeah, want right. to. <laughs> we don't really want to work with people who aren't going to launch products. Um, one of them was I don't know if you're familiar with a guy by the name of Eric Howard. Um, he launched a brand called Cali Weights, and now I think they've done some stuff with QVC and they're on QVC. So he, you know, it's it's been cool to watch his company grow. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. Like, there's there's just there's so much noise out there uh, in the manufacturing and product world that. You know, you just really have to have a good process in order to make sure you're working with the, the best people on the design side as well as the manufacturing side to make sure you don't run into those issues of, you know, predatory behavior by the factories or getting working with the designer who just has never made a product in mass manufacturing before. Right. Like those are killers of ideas. Right. You get you get tired, you get burnt out, you know, the entrepreneurial journey from your first time, if like it's taking forever and you aren't getting the results and you have a, you know, you kind of lose momentum, you lose steam and you put, you know, 10 to 25 K into a design process or production process. And you, you know, you get no results. Like that's, that's sad. That's hard. You know, I think my tooling cost on that watch stand were like $38,000 just for the, the tooling yeah. cost on it. it yeah. It, it was like stuff can be expensive. Yeah. 
So what do you think now? I mean, the old days, well, a lot of people were just going to Alibaba, finding some opportunity on Amazon that they could get on Alibaba and sticking their label on it, make it maybe making a bundle or making some small change and, and putting it out there. That still happens from time to time, but it's much more difficult. Now, now you really need to actually, like you said, do incremental uh, changes or innovate. I mean, all businesses right. comes down to two things is marketing and innovation. So how important mm-hmm. do you think is it that, or are you seeing this actually? How important do you think of it, it is? And are you seeing this a shift in the mindset of a lot of, especially Amazon sellers that, hey, I can't, I can't just do that anymore. I've got to come up with original ideas or, or do these incremental uh, changes and actually get serious about this. And uh, are, are you seeing, seeing that? And you think it's going to continue going in that direction? Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the competitive pressure um, if you go back to the massage gun, I think when we launched it, like they launched it, it was priced around like 200 bucks. And now I think you can get them for like 30 to 40 bucks. Right. So if you're just taking a white labeled product and launching that, you'll see what the pricing pressure will do over time. Like there's no, there's no barrier to entry there. Um, so, and like, I, like we were talking about earlier, like we're just so ingrained to have new products that solve problems faster now. Um, and with, with AI, I think it's going to get even more, you know, the trend is moving into much more, much faster iteration and much faster feedback across the board, not just in product, but just in life. Like you know, pe- things are going to happen so fast and the, the economies of scale you're going to get from AI um, are going to continue to fuel this innovation and the cadence of innovation. Uh, meaning that it's just going to continue to speed up. And so that's like precisely why we launched the product that we did uh, earlier in the spring. It's the marketplace the product, marketplace. the marketplace product, right? Yeah. Let's talk about right, that. So, what we, that. so that's pretty interesting. I, I saw that when it first launched and it was something around a bunch of product. You, you've kind of partnered with some factories that had some ideas and had some, some ways to change things. And then you, you vet them and put it on your site and it's like $500 or something. And then you get the rights. You're the sole person that comes off the site. You're the sole person that can then you introduce them to the factory and they can run with it from there. Right. Uh, basically. And, and you kind of yeah, pre-vetted. So, so it's almost like a, a product in a box, um, ready, ready to go and exactly. take those next steps. Exactly. So I think what, what Alibaba has done for white label products, we're doing for private label products, right? So we're taking concepts that have not hit the market before and you get the exclusive rights to develop them with the factory. And so it's a combination of, you know, market research and data and AI mixed with this, our design network to come up with the concepts. And then as soon as so we have those concepts- So you're taking like AI, can, like looking at reviews of top selling things and looking at patterns and trends with Amazon down and say, hey, yeah. if someone did a- I don't know, a water bottle that did this, this, and this based on these reviews and the trends, it could probably do well. Uh, so let's put our people to work and make a pro, uh, you know, like a prototype or a three, uh, you know, virtual prototype Con- to, yeah. A concept. Right. Yeah. And then have the factory. What can you do this for? You know, if we change this, this, and this, you know, can you do this and what would it be? Okay. Here's the cost. Um, here's the, you know, we have the material list, we have everything. And, and then sellers can come to you and say, I don't, I, you know, let me validate that this water bottle looks pretty cool. might fit into something I could sell. Let me go do my mm-hmm. own homework to actually validate that there's an opportunity here and I can afford to do this. And if so, it's like, you're like, here you go. Uh, and you, you have a, a pretty strong differentiation, di- differentiating factor out of the gate and a leg up and, exactly. a, and, a, and a jump on everybody else. Exactly. So yeah, again, it's kind of like first, first, right. You know, if you, if you click that reserve button and you, you, uh, reserve the product, you're put directly in touch with the factory. So you've kind of shortcut the development process and you've shortcut the sourcing process because we, the marketplace has done that for you. So you have the concept, you have the factory behind it, and you have the unit economics that tell you like, here's the MOQ, here's the price, and here's the sampling cost, and here's the mold and tooling cost. So all of that is accessible by a push of a button. Um, and as soon as you press that button, you're put in touch with the factory and into the sampling process for those fees that are set, that are stated on, on each reservation. And if you don't, if you see something, you know, you don't see something that you like, you can put in a form for us to get a custom product. So that's more of like your traditional design route, but we'll try and use the same process to make sure that we can launch something very quickly. So taking more of that incremental innovation approach that, you know, 
working with factories that have that process going through the AI engine using our design network and still doing that. It's just, it's, it's not as fast as just clicking a button. It's more of a, you know, two to four week process versus an instant process. Where's that marketplace? Is it at gimba.com or is it marketplace.gimba.com? Or what's the, how do I find that yeah. marketplace? Brand.gimba.com. Bram? Brand. Oh, brand. B-R-A-N-D. Yeah. Yeah. So com. Yeah. I think that's a brilliant idea. What about people that say that either that are buying one of these products off your marketplace or they have, they come to you with an idea. There's a lot of people listening right now and they're like, I've got a great idea or that's a great idea that you have, but how do I protect myself? Someone, how do I keep the factory from stealing this? Or how do I know that someone at Gimba is not going to, you know, send this out the back door and do their own version? That's a fear that a lot yeah. of people have. So what, what do you say to that and how does people potentially protect themselves? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a few things, you know, it, nothing would be invented if they're, if those fears weren't real, right? But at the end of the day, we wouldn't have all this innovation if people believe those fears wholeheartedly. Um, there's things that you can definitely do to protect them. Uh, you know, putting the Gemba thing aside, like we do NDAs and NNNs with every you know person we work with, as well as with every factory that we work with. For someone that don't, doesn't know, most people know an NDA is... Can you explain what those an NNN and NDA what the difference is for the somebody that may yeah, not so make it confused? An NDA is a non-disclosure agreement, right? So it's protecting any of the trade secrets and all that stuff. Um, works in most countries. In China is the only place that that term is not really a thing. They have a what's called an NNN, which is a non-disclosure, non-circumvention, and non-compete. So it combines all three of those things into one agreement. Um, and that's for, you know, if you're working cross borders with China, that's typically what was, is the most protectable of, you know, working with a factory. So if you don't have that yet, I highly recommend, regardless if you're launching a new product or if you have an existing product that you have that agreement in place with your factory. The second thing you can do is look down the route of design patents, right? So there's two different types of patents, utility or design. Utility is more of the functionality. So if you're coming up with something that's truly novel and the world has never seen before from a functionality perspective, you can file a provisional patent and that gives you a year to file, like to move forward and file, you know, get that whole thing situated. And I think, you know, Rich Goldstein is a good friend of ours who can help you down that path. If it's something that has already been launched in the world, but it looks different, so ornamentally looks different, uh, look, you know, the, the visual effect of it is different. Um, it's potential that you could have a design patent. So design patent will protect you in the country which it's issued. So if you're selling, wherever you're selling, the first thing you should be, you should think about is how to protect the place where you're selling the product. So if you're selling in America, you can get design patent in America. If you're selling in the UK, get a patent in the UK, right? So wherever you're going to sell the product, start filing those patents. Um, so that's going to protect, you know, as much as you can, those different avenues, you know, with the factory or with where you're selling it specifically. Um, after that, it's about innovation, right? Like if you're the first to market, don't be the last to innovate, be the first to innovate on your product. Cause then you're always going to have a leg up on your competition. Um, so to me, those are the most defensible things you can do is, you know, make sure you have agreements with your factories that clearly stipulate what happens if they do that. You can do things like move your molds offsite. You can have fees if all that, and it's all protected, you know, first by that NNN agreement, but then also with the contract with the factory so that there are specific terms if they compete with you. Then it's getting design patents or utility patents wherever you're going to sell the product. What's next for Gimba? You guys did a big uh, raise of millions of dollars, uh, funding around uh was it about a year, two year, year or two ago? Um, a couple years ago, to, yeah. Yeah, to help uh, really grow the company. Um, so what's 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 next for Gimba? What's happening uh, over under the Gimba hood? Yeah, the goal is to continue the trajectory. Um, I think the launch of the marketplace has helped make this you know democratization of innovation approachable, and that's our goal. Again, at the end of the day, is to help create the world's best products, and so we're just going to continue doing that as much as we can. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, what's next. <laughs> Just keep, keep trying to keep trying to make this process more accessible. Keep trying to launch more awesome products uh, and keep working with great people like you. I appreciate that. 
So if people want to uh, reach out to you and find out more about Gimba, what, uh, how, how would they do there? If they, they have some ideas uh, for a brand new product or innovating on something that they're already selling, uh, what's the best way to approach that uh, with, with you guys and find out if you could, if it's a good yeah, match? Um, if you're looking for more general uh, information, go to Gemba.com. That's G-E-M-B-A-H.com. If you want to check out these concepts, um, if you've done your research and you know exactly what you want to get, and we have those concepts online, you can go to brand.gemba.com and just reserve a product and start working with the factories. You can look, you can find us on, on LinkedIn and, and, uh, on, uh, on our website. Those are the best ways to find us. Awesome. Well, Zach, I really appreciate your time today and coming on. And, uh, you know, once uh, the Aggies and the Longhorns are in the SEC, <laughs> we're going to have to uh, go to a game together and see if we can, uh, stand, uh, stand it to being next to each other doing a game i know i know well i think we'll be okay as long as there's some good food and, and i some think booze, so too we'll i think so too <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to do that put that on on the list absolutely it's always always good to see you appreciate you having me on kevin no problem man we'll talk to you soon the guys over at gimba including zach and the whole team are, are great i've actually done business with them and they, they do an excellent job. So if you're ever looking for product innovation or development or uh, ideation, uh, they're, they're a great resource uh, for you to go to. And as you can tell, just innovation is, is so key in, in today's world. Uh, and that's really how you're going to build a true brand and set yourself apart. So I hope this talk has helped you and you've gotten some good information from it. We'll be back again next week with another awesome episode. And just as a quick uh, a little aside, we talked a lot in this episode about patent and IP stuff. Just go back to the August 3rd episode with Rich Goldstein. He's one of the top IP attorneys in the space. And listen to that episode. If you got some further questions on it, we, we go into a lot of detail on how to protect yourself on different on trademarks, uh, patents, uh, copyrights, the whole nine yards. And so it's, it's a great episode with a lot of information that uh, may be a nice supplement to what uh, Zach and I just talked about. So that's, that's episode 354 from August 3rd. Before we go this week, the words of wisdom kind of tie into what uh, we just talked about with Zach. You know, people buy identities. They don't buy products. Always remember that people buy identities. They don't buy products. So that's how you can truly differentiate. If you really grasp that concept when you're coming up with your ideas, just like what Zach said, Dyson, uh, you know, the, one of the d- designers of Dyson that's working for his team, he understands that. Apple understands that. A lot of the big brands understand that. And if you can get that into your branding and your products and understand that people are buying it for an identity rather than as a, a product and you can market off of that, it can make a huge difference in your success. We'll see you again next week.